KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. A new policy would limit migrants' ability to seek asylum at the border. This plan is being labeled the Biden administration's most restrictive immigration policy when it comes to asylum. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Watchdog groups are speaking out about National Guard troops being used to patrol the border. If there is that heightened demand, is this the proper role for the National Guard, or does that indicate that there needs to be more resourcing for the Department of Homeland Security? A plane carrying Mexican migrants crashed 75 years ago. The mission to identify them and their families. And law enforcement use of maximum restraint is associated with multiple deaths. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. A new Biden administration policy would limit the ability of migrants to seek asylum at the southern border. Asylum advocates are universally rejecting the policy, and legal action to stop it from taking effect is expected. Joining me now to talk about this is KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, welcome. Hello, Jade. So what's laid out in this new plan? Well, so this plan is being labeled uh, the Biden administration's most restrictive immigration policy when it comes to asylum. And it would essentially make anybody who crosses the border illegally automatically ineligible for asylum, which is a historic shift from how we've done asylum in this country since World War II, usually, uh, or not usually, but in all of those cases, everyone is eligible to seek asylum in the country independent of how they got in here. And uh, would there be any exceptions to this rule? Uh, There will be uh, some exceptions, uh, a fair amount of them, actually, but uh, the biggest one is for unaccompanied children. They would be exempted from this. Also, any migrants who go through other legal pathways to get into the country, like the CBP-1 that we've covered before, would be exempt from this as well. And also, migrants who cross a third country and apply for asylum there, like let's say somebody from Honduras crosses through Mexico, they would have to apply for asylum in Mexico, get denied in Mexico, and then they would be exempt from this rule. I mean, how drastically would this new plan limit entries? Pretty drastically at at, at the moment. Uh, One of my sources told me that right now with, you know, Title 42 and all the restrictions to legal entry into the country for asylum, those policies are pushing more and more asylum seekers to cross in between the ports of entry legally. So the majority of people crossing the border to request asylum are doing it by crossing illegally. So it would impact the majority of people at this point. You know, what's been the response to this proposed rule so far? Yeah, like you said in the intro, the response has been universal rejection from lawyers and advocates and migrants who who live and work in this space. I mean, they're quick to point out that the Trump administration had a similar rule, the transit, asylum transit ban, uh, which they fought against the advocates. And now Biden is bringing back another version of that. And at this point, it just seems like a betrayal of another betrayal, actually, of a campaign promise that Biden 
ran on, right, to restore a safe and humane asylum system. I think everyone's kind of given up hope in believing that that will ever happen under this administration. Right. And some Democrats have really criticized the Biden administration's immigration policies. What have they said about the legalities around the asylum process? Well, they were pretty clear on the legality of it. There was a group of more than 70 uh, Democrats who wrote a letter to the the White House uh, pointing out several concerns they had about President Joe Biden's immigration plan, including this new proposed rule. And they, they made it clear that Congress passed laws that clearly established that Anybody in the country, regardless of how they made it into the country, has a legal right to request asylum. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean they'll get it, but they have legal rights to access it. And that's like I kind of alluded to before. That goes back to the Second World War. And it recognizes that people who are truly vulnerable, who are fleeing for their lives, don't have time to go through the bureaucratic process of getting a visa or get all their belongings and buy a plane ticket. I mean, they have to run in the middle of the night in some cases. So this this law recognizes that fact and makes it, look, if you're here, you can apply for it. You have within a year of being in the country to, to request asylum. What prompted the Biden administration to introduce this policy? I think this is, well, not just I think, a lot of the, the sources I spoke to believe this is connected to the end of the uh, COVID pandemic uh, emergency order, which is set to end in May 11th. And that will lift Title 42 and some of the other COVID era travel restrictions that allow Border Patrol to keep migrants out of the country. And this is kind of seen as a, as a replacement to that effort. A lot of the criticisms of the Biden administration has been that the administration is too sensitive to criticisms of large numbers at the southern border. And every policy action that the White House has taken has been aimed at reducing the number of people at the border. So kind of addressing the optics and the numbers, but not really the humanitarian uh, issues behind them. Kind of looking at symptoms instead of solutions, it sounds like. You know, the Biden administration says it's encouraging migrants to pursue legal pathways to citizenship. What has the administration done to aid those legal pathways? It has done that. And to their credit, I think the the administration is very resistant to these comparisons to Trump, right? And and the first thing they bring up when they resist these comparisons is, look, we've actually expanded legal pathways through Uh, humanitarian parole programs through the CBP-1 app. Um, And that's accurate, and the advocates are lauding that. But it's also true that there are a lot of problems with these legal pathways and that the number of people using these legal pathways is very small compared to the overall migrant population and very small compared to the people that will be excluded by this new policy. Advocates have lauded some of the efforts, but what are they saying about the government encouraging legal pathways in general? I think they would all say it's a good thing. They would like to see more of that happening. But what they don't want to see, and which is what's happening, is that expanding legal pathways is kind of used as a bargaining chip. Um, they, They call it the carrot and the stick approach, right? The carrot would be expanding legal pathways, and the stick would be increasing border enforcement. They don't think the two should go hand in hand. And the way it's currently being played out, the stick is a lot bigger than the carrot. So they're not, they shouldn't be traded equally at all. But the way it's being done now, it's very skewed towards the defense and enforcement side. Even the administration has acknowledged this policy is not ideal. What have they said? They are, well, blaming Congress. Um, And they have legitimate reason to blame Congress, right? I mean, the, our, our, 
federal government or Congress and the Senate have failed to pass comprehensive immigration reform in more than 20 years. In the absence of that reform, we're left in a system where the executive branch passes policies, executive order, different directives, and our immigration system is kind of a patchwork of different executive orders and temporary uh, programs that have just been staying on and on and on. So the Biden administration is kind of saying, hey, look, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in a position to th- to do this. I've asked you, Congress, to pass comprehensive immigration reform, but you haven't. So now I have no other choice but to do something like this. What still has to happen before this rule becomes law? A 30-day public comment period, which then the government has to, by law, listen to all the comments, hear them out, and potentially change uh, some of the policies. So what is being rolled out now could change slightly or significantly depending on what comments the government receives and how they choose to interpret those. Uh, There could be more exceptions, fewer exemptions, we don't really know. But there is a comment period, then they have to write and publish the new policy and hopefully, based on their timeline, get it all done before or on May 11th. Do you think there'll be any legal challenges to the policy? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there, there will definitely be legal challenges. Uh, the ACLU has already come out and said they plan to sue uh, the ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center. Both sued the Trump administration when, when they tried to pass a similar ban. So it stands to reason that the same organizations that sued Trump over this are also going to sue Biden over this. And immigration looks like it's going to be a major issue in the next election. What is Biden hoping to achieve politically with this new proposal? I think Biden is trying to silence the critics on the right that say, keep on saying we have open borders. I think he's trying to appeal to to conservatives and maybe moderates, but at at the expense of alienating progressives and Democrats who, who, and immigration activists who lobbied for him. So I think he's definitely choosing what group he wants to appeal for. And I think it's very similar to uh, to local elections, right? There's this, this saying, like, if you want to win a local election, you just become tough on crime because it's very easy to win on tough on crime. I think we're seeing this at a national level where instead of tough on crime, it's tough on the border. And I think the Biden administration is kind of adopting that mindset. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thanks for talking with us. Oh, thank you, Jade. When National Guard troops deploy within the U.S., it's typically for short periods of time like a hurricane or other disaster. But the National Guard has patrolled the southern border for most of the last two decades. Some government watchdogs say that's an inappropriate use of the Guard. From Mission, Texas, Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Chimney Park RV Resort is a lush oasis of palm trees and natural vegetation. The 55 and older community sits on the bank of the Rio Grande, nestled behind a tall metal border fence. Big motorhomes sit alongside little bungalows and trailers. Wanda Lipto, a so-called winter Texan, has been coming here from Wisconsin with her husband since 2007. She circles the resort in a golf cart and greets her neighbors, who hail from all over. Missouri, here we have um, Canada, Minnesota, Nebraska. You can tell the northern states are represented here. (laughs) Hi, Diane. But Lipto has other neighbors, too. Border Patrol agents launch their patrol boats at Chimney Park. 
and on most days, two National Guard troops sit facing the river in a pickup truck with a raised camera in its bed. Lipto pulls up her golf cart to say hello. I live here, so I was just curious. We see you coming and going. Thank you for what you do. Keep, keep up the good work. But you see how they're just a nice young man, probably a long ways from home. Lots of grandmas and grandpas around here. <laughs> The last four presidential administrations have sent National Guard troops to the southwest border. About 2,400 of them are now watching the border and helping the Department of Homeland Security in other ways. Catherine Kuzminski, a researcher with the Center for a New American Security, says the long-running mission raises a big question. If there is that heightened demand, is this the proper role for the National Guard, or does that indicate that there needs to be more resourcing for the Department of Homeland Security? Kuzminski suspects part of the reason that the Guard has been deployed so long is because it's easier politically. Money for the Guard comes out of the defense budget, which is less controversial than border security funding. And so this is a way to quietly fill the capacity need without having to renegotiate budget items or increase a budget. And Homeland Security wants the help. The military provides manpower, equipment and expertise to help Customs and Border Protection agents. Elizabeth Field is with the Government Accountability Office. We found that there was a real need for tasks such as maintaining vehicles, uh, as well as conducting border surveillance. Uh, and officials told us that they really have a challenge when it comes to recruiting personnel. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said the military shouldn't be involved at the border long term, and that Homeland Security should develop the ability to conduct operations on its own. But the two agencies have struggled to come to an agreement. Field says the long mission is costing the Defense Department, both in money and in readiness. This is not a small amount of money, even for DOD. And we found that the National Guard had, in some cases, had to cancel training exercises because National Guard troops were on the border performing this function. In addition to the federal troops sent to the border by the last four presidents, Texas Governor Greg Abbott also has deployed his state's National Guard to the region. Victor Trevino is the mayor of Laredo, a major port of entry. He says the troops make some residents feel safer and also deter vigilantes from trying to police the border themselves. But he says the Guard isn't a permanent solution. Their mere presence and their mere uh, necessity to be here as a support uh, entities just shows us how much we need immigration reform. And as we see, we're just putting a Band-Aid on everything. Lawmakers are trying to better understand the Defense Department's role at the border. A provision in the latest defense budget requires the department to brief Congress quarterly about the mission. This is Carson Frame reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. For this next story, we're going to California's Central Valley. 75 years ago, a plane crashed near the town of Kalinga, killing everyone on board. The plane carried Mexican migrants on their way to be deported. After the crash, the government buried just the Mexican passengers in a mass grave. Officials didn't even release their names, only calling them deportees. Writer and poet Tim Z. Hernandez has spent a decade tracking down the families of those who died and recording their stories. The California Report magazine host Sasha Coca brings us a live performance where Hernandez brought these stories to light. So this is our town's museum. On a Saturday last month, Tim visited the small museum in Colinga. It's like a time capsule of the Central Valley town. It's got old oil drilling and farm equipment, antique clothes, furniture, fossils, fire engines. They've even got the propeller of the plane that crashed near here in 1948. She's not kidding. That is heavy. This is a heavy propeller. You can see it's still bent. A bright green poster board hanging from a flagpole outside the museum announces Tim is here today to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the crash. As a crowd of locals starts to gather, I catch up with some old-timers who still remember the disaster, like Oren Whitcomb, whose family has lived in Los Gatos Canyon since the 1870s. I remember running, stopping my mother, stopping the car, and I ran up to the accident. It was up on the side hill, steep. And there were still parts of the burned-out seats. They moved all the, the plane out, but there were still... And I remember seeing the burned-up seats and all. I just... How old were you? I was 10. It was 1948. Tim first learned about this story decades later, when he saw an old newspaper headline about the crash on microfiche while he was researching farmworker history. He remembered the Woody Guthrie song, and he got obsessed. He tracked down the families of seven of the passengers and wrote about their stories in his 2017 book titled, All They Will Call You. Since then, he's found six more passengers' families, both in the U.S. and Mexico, for a forthcoming sequel. But here in Colinga, he's mostly talking to the descendants of ranchers who witnessed the crash. Thank you all. Uh, It's such an honor to be here. in Kalinga, because since 2010, when I began this journey of searching for this story, uh, this is the first town, this is the first community I came to because I didn't know where to begin. And I'm going to share with you today uh, some of the stories in this presentation, folks in this local community here that you'll know, that a lot of you know, and some of you might be related to. So, you know, give yourselves a round of applause for that. It's really an honor to be here with you. Tim unfolds the stories he's gathered about the crash into a series of spoken word performances, like this one. I've been marching for days. His partner, Boyle Heights musician Ana Saldana, accompanies him with songs. The eyewitness accounts, from what I've heard folks tell me about, how it was across the canyon, it looked like you've seen all the pieces of someone's life just scattered. There were papers and shoes and luggage and, and just clothes everywhere. And then, of course, body parts, too. It was just in fragments. 
And that's how it's been. That's a good analogy for how it's been to research this. I've only found pieces of information here and another piece there. A lot of it's gone. Tim's first breakthrough in his research came after he put an ad in the Central Valley bilingual newspaper Vida en el Valle back in 2013, asking if anyone had any information about the families of the 28 Mexican workers who died. I get an email late one night as I'm researching, and the email says, Mr. Hernandez, my name is Jaime Ramirez, and I am the grandson and nephew of two of the passengers on that airplane. Tim gets more animated. He starts to gesture as he acts out the story of how he went to Jaime Ramirez's restaurant and saw birth certificates, photos, and documents showing his connection to the two passengers all laid out on a table. And then Jaime said something that changed everything. He said he had a list of the names. I don't know, would you want to take a look at it or... And I said, you have a list? You have a list? As fate would have it, this is the first family I would find. He says, yeah, let me show you the list I got. He pulls out this envelope. And from that envelope, like origami, he pulls out this old sepia, tattered, stained newspaper, this big newspaper. And it's like, it's so thin, it's like onion skin, you know? And it blows in the breeze. And he set it down on the table there on the tabletop. Jaime Ramirez's widowed grandmother had kept the Fresno Spanish-language newspaper someone sent to her in Mexico after her husband died in the crash. And it has the first, middle, and last name of every passenger killed on that airplane. And then it also has the last known residence of every single passenger who was killed on that airplane. And then, not done yet, and then it also has a list of their relatives and their their family members' names also. I said to Ms. Ramirez, well, I don't have that list. (laughs) (laughs) Jaime Ramirez is here at the museum in Colinga listening to this story. I ask him how that fateful meeting with Tim back in 2013 has changed things for his family. Tim's research has helped him fulfill a promise he made to his grandmother to find out what happened to his grandfather and his uncle who died in the crash. I sent each family member a summary of Tim's research, Jaime says, photos and videos and a cassette tape with the Woody Guthrie song on it. It strikes me that Jaime and his family are some of the only Mexicans at this Colinga event marking the 75th anniversary. But Jaime says the communities touched by the crash have more in common than they might think. He says he hopes people realize Mexicans come to California to work, not to cause trouble. That plane was hurtling both the Mexicans and the white people aboard toward the same fate. We're all human. Our skin color doesn't matter, he says. That's really Tim's goal with this whole project, to bring together the very different communities affected by this crash. That's why he's presenting his work in both Colinga and near L.A.'s historic Olvera Street, 
where the audience is packed with Chicano writers, artists, actors. They audibly gasp as Tim reveals intimate details he's uncovered that make the passengers human, vivid. He projects photos of the man who played baseball in the Mexican League in Stockton, the boyfriend who knew how to do embroidery, the son who had a white father and was probably an American citizen. He tells them the story of traveling to Jalisco in Mexico to find family members of a passenger named Luis Miranda Cuevas. Is there anybody alive who would have known him? Is there anybody? No, sorry. There's nobody. Everybody's gone. That whole generation's gone. But then a voice in the back goes, Casimiro's alive. ¿Qué? Arturo, ¿qué? ¿Qué dices? They all huddle. Arturo says, Casimiro's alive. No, it's my tia. She's alive. Everybody, get in my van. I'll show you where she lives. Everybody gets in Arturo's van, and we're going up the road. We get to Casimira's house, Bugambilia's, and Casimira comes out in a little wheelchair. And she's wearing a little beanie, like a knitted beanie. And then he says, Tia, Tia, you're not going to believe why these folks are here from the United States. You're not going to believe this. And she says, what? He says, they want to talk to you about one of your good friends, Tia. A good friend, Tia. Arturo Kim says, Luis, before he finishes the name, she says, the one that died in the plane crash? And she said, I spoke with Luis the day before he was killed. He called me from the detention center in San Francisco and he said, Casimira, they've caught us all and they're deporting us by airplane tomorrow. And she said, I'm so sorry, Luis, I'm sorry. And he said, no, 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 Casimira, no, I don't care. I don't care because I have enough money now because he'd been picking strawberries in Watsonville. He said, I have enough money. Tomorrow when I fly back, Casimira, I'm coming back to ask you to marry me and I'm going to bring you a mariachi. So I said to her, Casimira, if Luis had returned and he had a mariachi for you, what's the song you would have wanted to hear? Mm. And she said, The crowd at this show includes some of the Southern California families who've only recently figured out their connection to the crash. My name is Michael, my last name is Rodriguez, and um, I was uh, eight months old when my Aunt Maria uh, died on that plane crash. Next to her, they found a bag of blue baby clothes. I was eight months old at the time, and it pretty much became a fact that those clothes were probably coming to me in Mexico. Unfortunately, they never made it. Is that part of why you're wearing a blue shirt today? And that is, uh, yes, that is indeed why. Very proud of it. His son, Mike, heard about Tim Hernandez's book through NPR's Twitter feed and realized his great-aunt was the only woman among the Mexican workers who died in the crash. Tia Maria is here as a trailblazer. And we have some very strong women in our family. Actually, probably if it wasn't for the women in our family, you know, we probably would not be as connected and together as we are today. And so I see Tia Maria as being like one of the starters, right, of that tradition. Mike's cousin, Sandra Andrade, says her Tia Maria was a hard worker who came to the U.S. so she could send money home. 
One time, she bought her family in Ensenada a door to replace the curtain covering the entrance to their house. And I mean, we're happy to be able to, to know now truly where she is, where she's located. We can pay our respects now, which was something we couldn't do before. I, I teach uh, ethnic studies in Santa Ana. And one of our slogan is, our stories matter, right? Because it's, it, it just didn't just happen in 1948. Like it's happening today too. There's a lot of people that are, uh, that are coming over, that are crossing over, that are losing their lives. Tim Hernandez says he doesn't plan to stop searching until he finds all the families of the Mexican passengers. He's got about 15 more to go. In 2013, Tim and the families were able to get a new headstone on the mass grave in Fresno, spelling out the passengers' actual names. And in 2018, the California State Senate recognized the accident and issued a formal apology. Severo Medina Lara. At the end of every performance, Tim reads the names of the passengers and invites the crowd to say presente after each name. Because names matter. Because every life has to be accounted for. Presente. Martin Navarro Razo. Presente. Ramon Paredes Gonzalez. Presente. That story from the California Report magazine host Sasha Coca. You can see photos of the passengers, their families, and the crash on our website, kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Last month, San Diego County settled a civil case brought by the family of a man killed while in police custody. The county paid out $12 million. At the center of the lawsuit was a particular restraint used by deputies on Lucky Founcy called Maximum Restraint or hog tying. Maximum Restraint is associated with multiple deaths here in San Diego, along with millions of dollars in settlement money. But as Greg Moran reports in the San Diego Union Tribune, the Sheriff's Department has decided not to ban the restraint, as other departments have done. He joins us now to talk about why. Greg, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So this lawsuit was brought by the family of Lucky Founcy, who died in custody in 2015. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, yes. He was at a, a relative's home with his family uh, in Santee, and um, he had been uh, out to a music festival several days before where he took a small amount of the drug ecstasy. Um, and ever since then, he had been un- unable to sleep. So he was very edgy and had become kind of paranoid. The short story is that he ended up calling uh, the sheriff's department for help, for assistance. He thought somebody was out to get his family. Two deputies showed up uh, and kind of encountered him and started to talk to him. And when they went to handcuff him, uh, and it's unclear why they did, he uh, began to get agitated. And then a deputy tasered him and was off to the races. It became a very protracted and violent struggle 
within the, the home he was at, uh, with as many as 10 or 11 deputies involved, they uh, threw him to the ground. He was tasered, uh, was beaten, punched, and eventually he was tied in the maximum restraint position, which involved cus- cuffing their hands and feet and attaching them behind your back. Uh, taken outside, they waited for an ambulance to come. Uh, he was left in the hogtied position for about 20 minutes. Uh, by the time he got to the hospital, he was in respiratory distress. His heart had stopped beating. Uh, his brain was essentially dead. And a couple of days later, his family uh, discontinued life support and he died. Hmm. And, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, the maximum restraint position is is pretty much like uh, being hogtied. Um, how many other people have died while under maximum restraint in San Diego? Well, by my reckoning, and, and it's not exhaustive or comprehensive, but just in looking through the number of lawsuits that have been filed against the Sheriff's Department over the past couple of decades, I count eight deaths, including uh, Lucky Fauci. And that is people both like him who were tied up and restrained uh, in the field. And there have been several deaths in the county jails uh, related to hog tying or, or maximum restraints, as the term the Sheriff's Department uh, prefers. And that's about over 20 years. And in Lucky Fauncy's case, he stopped breathing while he was um, hogtied or or in the maximum restraint. What are the dangers of maximum restraint? That's the main one. It's called positional asphyxia. Uh, You're put in a position with your, you can imagine having your hands behind your back and your, your ankles and knees kind of drawn up behind them and those connected together. And then you're placed essentially face down on your belly. Uh, for an ex- extended period of time, you will have trouble breathing. Um, so positional asphyxia is one. You can have a heart attack, a stroke, you know, uh, things like that, if it's not done properly. You know, if, uh, it, and there's also some evidence that, you know, people who are under the influence of drugs, methamphetamine or something like that, you know, when put in that position, it kind of increases their anxiety and and the uh, you, you know biological processes going on, their heart rate increases and things like that, and they too can go into some kind of distress. But the main danger is you can stop breathing and basically suffocate. And despite those dangers and the deaths, why has the sheriff's department said that they are keeping this restraint in their toolbox? Well, I, th- I think a couple of reasons. So. After uh, this case had uh, resolved, you know, they, they said they took a look at their training, uh, how they train deputies to use this technique and have revised that uh, to a point that they think is going to be, uh, have better outcomes. You know, to me, I haven't seen the new video. It's a, it's a video training. Um, they say they'll put it up on their website soon. But the description of it seems like they are emphasizing things that were already in the training before, um, but now kind of making a better, a, a bigger point of uh, telling deputies what to do and what not to do, like how you should uh, bind somebody uh, by their hands and feet, you know, not too tight and the, the cord should go in a certain place and not in another place. You know, there's uh, a lot of emphasis on monitoring the person's health, vital signs, breathing, respiration, you know, heart rate and things like that while they're tied up, you know, putting them on their side and things like that. So they, you know, 
feel that by I think by revising the training, it, they can maintain the use of this technique uh, safely uh, going forward. I mean, in reading your report, one of the things that stuck out was the sheriff's email to you about the role of a safety officer, an officer who's tasked with monitoring the breathing and vital signs of the person under restraint. Do we know if this was done in the case of Lucky Founcy? We know in that case, it really was not. Uh, that was one of the several critical uh, errors, I think, that the plaintiff's lawyers and that came out in the, in the trial is that there was not a designated like safety officer. There wasn't somebody who has said, okay, look, you know, Pete or, or Jeff or whatever, you know, keep your eye on this guy and make sure he's okay. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, and that, that is a, uh, that, that is a failure of, of the, the, the department. He was at one point he was on his, he was restrained with his arms and legs behind his back and face down for, you know, close to 30 minutes. Um, you know, on the driveway of this home while they were waiting for an ambulance to show up and so forth. That is, in all of the other, uh, you know, trainings that other departments that still use this have, and the, and the kind of standard uh, in policing and law enforcement across the nation is, you, you know, you have to have a safety officer. You have to have somebody who's specifically designated. They're not involved in, in the restraint, in the arrest, or anything who's just monitoring the person so that you don't have these really horrific outcomes. And I mean, what do other law enforcement agencies um, say about this? Uh, do they use this particular restraint? You know, a lot of them don't. I mean, over and this also was an issue in the uh, trial was that many departments have really banned this technique. They don't do, they certainly don't do hog tying, uh, you know, and they don't even do the restraint, the maximum restraint where you have hands behind the back uh, connected to your ankles. Um, you know, large departments, Los Angeles, LAPD does not, New York uh, City Police Department does not. The, the technique is banned in the entire state of Georgia by any law enforcement agency in Georgia and has been for a couple of decades. Federal law enforcement does not do this. There are, there are many departments that don't because over the years they have had either bad experiences or outcomes or they recognize the danger that uh, this uh, technique can can uh, can lead to, and they have found other ways, uh, less dangerous ways, to restrain people who are uncooperative. Right. I mean, you know, lawsuits around these deaths have cost taxpayers quite a bit of money. Can you lay that out for us? Yeah. So, you know, this was a twelve million dollars settlement. So this wasn't a jury verdict. This is what the county agreed to pay. That's a lot of money for the county to pay out in any kind of uh, law enforcement excessive force case. The other seven cases, which were, you know, one every few years, settled for a little. All of them combined for like one point four million dollars. You know, a few hundred thousand dollars. I think the the largest amount in any of those was six hundred thousand dollars. But total over the years, that's thirteen. $4 million that the county has paid out um, for these deaths that a lot of people, particularly advocates, lawyers who work in the civil rights area, say, you know, is being paid out for a technique that really doesn't, shouldn't be used anymore. They, they, should, they should abandon the, the maximum restraint process entirely, uh, not only for the safety of, of the public, but it would also probably save them money. Uh, in the long run. Hmm. At the end of the day, it seems this maximum restraint 
has the potential to cost lives. It does. Uh, it costs taxpayer dollars. I mean, is this something you think the sheriff's department might consider banning in the future? You know, I thought that, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I thought, I know that's certainly what the Fancy family wants. You know, they they don't want, and their lawyers and everything, don't want anyone to have to go through this again and, and really feel it is an unnecessary uh, I shouldn't say unnecessary, but there are better ways to to achieve the same ends without putting people at risk. I, I think, you know, if I were to guess, I would say, you know, like many policing agencies, when they have a tool, they don't like to give up the tool. You know, there's always the sense like, well, we may need this one day or boy, in some situation, the rap won't work or we don't want to, you know, be constrained uh, by, by uh, what we can do in these kind of very fraught situations. I mean, a, a parallel is the whole controversy over the carotid uh, artery hold. You know, activists had been asking departments to get rid of that for literally for decades. And it was not until right after the death of George Floyd that these departments, which had steadfastly said, no, we are not going to get rid of this. This is an important thing for us to do. Almost overnight, you know, banned it here in San Diego. You know, I don't know if that's going to happen with with their strengths. I know it's something that a lot of people, as I said, the Fancy family certainly would like to see done. But at this point, they they think that if they can, I guess, revise, refine, and and emphasize things in their training, they'll be okay, and they'll still have um, that procedure, that that technique, whatever, uh, available to them if they need it. I've been speaking with Greg Moran of the San Diego Union-Tribune. Greg, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. A growing number of people in California are getting no-strings-attached cash to help them meet their monthly budget, including here in San Diego. The idea of offering a guaranteed basic income supplement to people living in poverty was thrust into the national spotlight when the city of Stockton experimented with it five years ago. Now a slew of new similar programs are rolling out across the state, marking the largest effort in U.S. history. CalMatters reporter Gene Kwong just released a two-part report on this trend and spoke with Cap Radio's Randall White about it. Jeannie, how much money and how many people are we talking about? So I counted up all of the different local pilot programs testing out a guaranteed income that I could find across the state. And it looks like by the end of the next two or three years, there will have been more than 12,000 Californians that have received this kind of cash. And it's going to total up to $180 million in public and privately funded payments. Where are these new guaranteed basic income programs popping up? They're all over the state. We've got a bunch of them operating in the Bay Area, a number in Los Angeles and Los Angeles County. But there are a few also in Sacramento. Ventura County is going to have one coming up later this year. Yeah, they're really all over. How about the state of California? Is there something being considered at that level? Yeah, the governor approved some money to fund the state's own pilot programs. And this year they're planning on uh, funding seven pilot programs around the state that particularly target expectant 
parents and former foster youth who are preparing to leave state custody. I recall the Stockton program was funded entirely by private donations. You just mentioned a mix of private and public. How is that working for most of these programs? The state itself is going to be putting $25 million towards those seven programs. And then there's also going to be a requirement to fundraise some private dollars on the side as well. But a lot of the smaller programs or um, even some of the larger ones like L.A. and L.A. County, those are publicly funded. A lot of the cities and counties across the state are using federal aid that they got during the COVID emergency to uh, pay for these programs. How do people qualify for the programs? Is there any standardization or is it just all over the map? They're all being individually run, so they all have different criteria. And a lot of the different programs are trying to see whether this kind of unrestricted cash can do something for a certain kind of person. They are targeting populations like people returning home from incarceration, families with children who are low income, former foster youth. So there's all sorts of different populations that the programs are targeting. Most of them do have some kind of income cap with the idea that this is a policy that is trying to target people living in poverty or or low income people. Stockton presented evidence to show their program worked. Is there evidence yet to show how well these other programs are working? I think We're really waiting and seeing on a lot of these. They all kind of launched in the past couple years, so there's not a whole lot of data out of them yet. And we are also still waiting on a report on the second year of the Stockton experiment, which was 2020. Obviously, lots of seismic shifts in the economy that year. So we're going to want to see what happened that year, um, as well as get some more data on, on those kinds of outcomes with all of these other programs that are running across California. Jean Kwong covers issues connected to the state's economic divide for Cal Matters. She was speaking with Cap Radio's Randall White. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.